listening to the Journey Home Podcast. Welcome to the Journey Home Podcast. This is Matthew Starrett. I'm a psychotherapist and musician based in Surrey, UK. The premise for the Journey Home is to offer space for conversation with those sharing a lived experience of addiction, mental health, and a multitude of topics that resonate with the guest. The aim is to promote awareness of the dialogue content and serve as a pathway to therapeutic services. My guest today is Pat DeYoung. Pat is a psychotherapist based in Toronto, Canada, who has practiced relational psychotherapy for over 35 years. She holds a PhD in philosophy of education and has authored two books, Relational Psychotherapy, A Primer, and Understanding and Treating Chronic Shame, A Relational Neurobiological Approach, a second edition under the title Understanding and Treating Chronic Shame, Healing Right Brain Relational Trauma, expands to consider issues of societal oppression, trauma and polarisation from the perspective of deeply rooted and disavowed societal shame. It also features a new chapter that focuses on the diagnosis and treatment of several different forms of chronic shame. So relational psychotherapy has been really important in my own journey uh, in regards to recovering from relational trauma and shame. It's something I first encountered many years ago when I was sitting in the client's chair. I had seen various therapists of different backgrounds, but still found myself coming back to the same place of shame and problems in relationship with others. I began working with a therapist where everything just seemed to click. I remember thinking at first, I don't know why this feels different or why it's clicking or why I feel more comfortable, but I just remember feeling like I was truly heard and experienced with non-judgment and caring curiosity that felt really authentic. And I really recognize that quality of authenticity is something I really value in others and it enables me to feel safe and connect with them. The process also felt incredibly collaborative in a way I'd never experienced in any of my relationships prior. There certainly wasn't a kind of, you need to do this because it will be better for you or a total blank screen as I may have experienced before in various relationships and even in some psychotherapy. Through developing a relationship with this therapist, I was able to process and explore my early trauma and begin to develop a healthy relationship with myself and others in a way that once seemed impossible. On reflection, I realized I needed this before I could access any of the other therapeutic approaches. As an integrative therapist, I recognize how this relational aspect underpins all of my work. There's so many amazing areas in therapy that I'm really interested in and I find myself drawing on, but that base, that fundamental relational part is so important. Pat is kind of like a rock star in the therapy world, so I feel really privileged and excited to speak with her today. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'll catch you on the other side. I'm here with Pat DeYoung. Pat, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Good to be here. How are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm fine. (laughs) So I'm aware you're kind of a rock star in the field of psychotherapy. So it's uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's an overstatement, but <laughs> it's uh, mm. it's a real privilege being here with you today. So for for those who may be unfamiliar, speak about what relational psychotherapy is. Hmm. Relational psychotherapy highlights the sort of core of what any good psychotherapy is and kind of makes that the stuff of the work. And it's actually quite complex. It seems simple that, uh, you know, as Carl Rogers said years ago, empathy and authenticity and presence um, make all the difference. And when you study across uh, modes of psychotherapy about what the efficacious sort of things are that therapists do, those turn up no matter what therapy you're doing. Uh-huh. So relational, relational therapy says, okay, how does that work? And how can we kind of amplify that effect? And it gets complex because inside the relationship, there are all the expectations and projections of past relationships. So the transference stuff is included. There's the, um, the, the world of relationship in which a client lives and 
to which they bring all those expectations and projections. So it's it's uh, it's kind of uh, an ecological view, like people exist in systems. And then really significantly, there's the relationship between the client and the therapist, which is not sort of sort of held in the background, but is allowed to come forefront. What's going on between us right now? What are you feeling? How was that for you? Um, that sort of thing is a, is a general, when it feels appropriate and the client can handle that kind of a question, is an ongoing part of the therapy too, so that it becomes a kind of a lab, the therapy, for the kind of expectations and projections and desires and fears that people carry around all the time. They will bring the relational ones. They will bring them into the therapy relationship, and there they are, and you can work with them and and be kind to them and uh, explore them and so forth. So in a nutshell, that's relational psychotherapy. Oh, thank you for, for that. Such a great description. I really, I haven't heard it uh, put that way, but almost like like a lab, I think I heard you say. Um, mm. And that sense of certainly what I, it's something that before becoming a psychotherapist myself was really important in my own journey. I didn't know that's what was happening until mm. later down the line. And I was kind of started studying this stuff. It's like, oh, that was relational. Ah, mm-hmm. But everything you said there really, you know, it really resonates with my journey and why I think I was so drawn to it. But that sense of it being one's own lab rather than there being a set of it's this way or it's that way, or I guess that's what I took from what you were saying, what I've taken from your work. Does that, does it feel that way to you that it's very individual that's right. and that's important, you know, to, to, to kind of go wherever that client needs to go rather than subscribing to potentially one set of ideas and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's go back if that's okay. Uh, Tell me about your journey into psychotherapy and particularly relational psychotherapy. Hmm. Well, I began my adult life thinking that I would be a teacher of literature. I did a undergrad degree in philosophy and literature and, uh, master's in that and then worked on a PhD in that for a while and then came to a place in my own life. I had I was pregnant with my third child and, uh, you know, adult life gets so stressful. Who am I? What am I doing here, right? Still in this grad program. Um, and I decided to go to psychotherapy um, when things got tense and stressful and was encouraged to do that by my spouse. And, <laughs> um, and uh found out, began to find out a lot that I had known but never known. You know how that is. You carry these complications, these troubles Mm -hmm. in your body, in your spirit, and then you find out about them in the therapy process. And I wasn't that sure that I would ever be able to find an academic job in literature at that time. And so I had half a mind to look for something different to do with my life anyway. And all of a sudden it was there. Oh, when I sat with my first therapist, this is interesting. Mm. I think I'd like to do this. (laughs) So I retrained a little bit to be able to get a social work degree because that's one of the tickets um, to be able to get paid for your work and also trained to be some kind of psychotherapist. And then in addition to that, I went into a training institution specifically for psychotherapy that was parallel at the end of my social work degree. And, um, was kind of eclectic for a while, but then I think it suited my nature and my my reading. I just kind of followed what I was interested in. Um, and I also, in social work, first began to work with people who'd suffered quite a lot of trauma and were in not in the mental, not in hospital, but had uh, experience in right. the mental health system. Um, and I saw how attunement and recognition and respect, those really basics, made all the difference to those folks when they sat with you. They did not need another diagnosis. They totally didn't need an agenda. They needed somebody to hear their story, to hear their feelings, to be with them. And they would improve remarkably and settle. And, you know, the fragmented ones would. And it's like, oh, oh, this really works. This is, this is, you know, I, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to know more about. So. Amazing. And you touched there about your, your kind of eureka, aha moment in, in psychotherapy as, you know, I think as, as I had said earlier, having that kind of moment of being really 
just seen and experienced. Talk about your your experience of of therapy. What was it about that process that was so sounds val- really valuable to you? Hmm. I think I have had many therapists over the years, as most of us therapists have by the time we're in our late sixties. <laughs> um, but I think what all of them had in common, the ones who moved me and helped me and supported me, you know, who made a big difference in my life, the, 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 the essence of what made the difference was their capacity to see me, mm. to wait, to wait for me to, to speak, to believe me, to be attuned to, I had a couple of really good self-psychology therapists and it's all about for them it's an empathic immersion right i'm going to be in your world and i'm going to try to understand what you're telling me from your point of view yeah it sort of lets a self come into being without constraint right totally and going back to what you had mentioned i really felt that i kind of i felt an almost annoyance or anger for those people that you you alluded to who may have just been diagnosed and diagnosed or labeled and and just not heard and that mm-hmm. sense of, oh, I take a breath. I can actually, I can wait. I can be seen. I can, you know, wait, wait a minute. Listen, listen to me. And that's right. Yeah. That's what's so powerful about this. And I get for you, is that the, you know, you talk about, you know, in your books, um, the sort of healing of the relational wounds, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's linked to that. Did you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and did you? Did you recognize any of that for you in therapy or, or further down the line, reflecting back that actually, that relationship was maybe modeling something that you weren't used to maybe growing up or was a Absolutely. bit different. Really? That's right. Okay. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. My parents loved us very much, but they didn't know how to show it very well. And they were anxious and there yeah. were six children and there were, you wow. know, struggles for money and whatever, you know? So I, I don't ever blame parents in my, in my practice. And mm-hmm. I certainly don't blame mine, but I, but I do know that they did not manage their own feelings very well. It's hard for them to be with feelings. So they have a bunch of little kids and the little kids just don't get seen in their mm. emotional uh, being, right? They get fed yeah. and clothed and cared for and taken to church and read books too and all that good stuff. But something missing in the, I see you. Um, mm. What are you feeling right now? Um, it's okay to be you to, you know, those basic, those basic kinds of affirmations of, of a, of a core emotional self. And when that's missing, it's hard to call that trauma because it doesn't look like it, but for kids who feel just kind of alone in their, in their core, it is a kind of trauma. It's what I call relational trauma. Yeah. That's beautiful listening to you, to you talk about that there. And as you say, the whole can almost imagine those outside things being met often but actually there's just that kind of woundedness inside or that, that gap. Mm-hmm. I really, I really recognize that. Um, and it's way, tricky, right? Because mm-hmm. you feel like you, 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 you've got nothing to complain about. You had yeah, a good What gives childhood. me the right, what gives me the right. Exactly. To- and that's why it's so important to have therapists who listen very attentively and wait for the inner experience to kind of slowly emerge and who can affirm it as it, as it comes up. Right. Definitely. Yeah, yeah for sure. And this sort of links onto the, the next thing I wanted to, to bring up for you, which is around shame. Mm-hmm. Um, so your work has been a real fountain of wisdom for me, both professionally and personally. I remember I had come across um, understanding and treating chronic shame many years ago, and it was a word I was getting more familiar with. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, that's what that hole was. That's what that was. Mm-hmm. And it's been something that I've, I've struggled with and done a lot of work on and which in turn has really given me, kind of energizes me in a way in, in mm-hmm. practice because it's something I really recognize, you know, I, that that thing about, I know what that is. I'm interested in it. It's a horrible thing, but I'm interested in it because, and for all, hopefully the reasons we're about mm-hmm. to talk more about, could you talk about your experience of shame um, what what is the what is shame to you? Hmm. Shame is this lurking feeling that something is wrong with me, right? Um, that if, especially in relationships, if something goes wrong, it must have been something that I did, or if I make a mistake, it's unbearable. 
because it's not just a, the size of the mistake has no bearing on how I feel about it, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just overwhelming in that moment. I'm just a walking mistake, kind of. It's that kind of susceptibility that 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 not that loss of capacity to be resilient around mistakes and breaks with people. Um, it's mm. just feeling like something's going to be your fault all the time, and that and that and and more. Um, that's not quite it because it's more than fault. There's a, mm -hmm. for most people and for me, a sense of hidden ugliness and awkwardness. And there's an ick, like a real ick, yuck factor, yeah. right? About yeah. me. And if people really knew, and it's often covered very well, and it's just hiding down in there, right? For sure. Yeah. And I wonder if for you, because certainly for me, as I'm thinking about this, the early experiences and potentially being the outward stuff which can cover it up. Hey, hey, everything's okay for you, which is internalized as, you know, I go to a private school, I get this, I get that. Well, whatever it might be, why do I feel yuck? I can't feel yuck. But that yeah, kind that, of that, old, that, that old sort of Jungian thing of, you know, resistance leading to persistence and the more, mm. do you know what I mean? And Exactly. The more you think I shouldn't be feeling this yuck, the more something is wrong with you that you do. You're ashamed of your shame. Shame loves yep. it. It's almost like food okay. for the shame. Mm, yep. Like yep. shame, shame begets more shame. And mm -hmm. the, the book I, I I spoke of, chronic shame. Does it for you? How does it become chronic, or is it someone is born and when shame happens, it's chronic shame immediately, or is this a developmental thing into chronic shame? Talk about the the, the chronic yeah. nature of shame. I believe that it is developmental and kind of environmentally induced. I think that some kids are born more sensitive than others. And mm. so then they're more, more prone or more likely to have sensitive reactions to negative uh, reactions to them from parents and others in their world. Um, but the chronicity comes from the lack of repair when there are shame events or when when a child it feels bad and and out of sorts with their parents and they may or may not have been told they're bad but they're just lonely in that place and when that's not recognized and talked about and repaired and whatever happened sort of made a part of normal life right yeah, if yeah. that if that kind of non repair of feeling alone and wrong yeah. happens over and over again, the chronicity comes from there, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It yeah. just takes root. That's my view of it anyway. Yeah, and I, I really recognize, relate, subscribe to everything you said there, it being a real, it brings to mind that kind of notion of not learning that actually getting things wrong is okay in mm -hmm. a way or being validated yeah you got it wrong or that wasn't okay but you're okay you know i often think yes this kind of notion i recognize it can sometimes come up with feelings like anger and rage you know anger is a regular human emotion but mm -hmm. if that isn't allowed to have space like you, like you said parents often they're busy there can be loads of kids there's there's loads of stuff going on that can really really flip um and a child someone can learn that the feeling isn't okay and it's like mm -hmm. okay maybe the behavior isn't okay but you're okay and it sounds like the, the chronicity is sort of coming from just a regular learning of you're not okay you're not okay you're not okay you know almost just this monotonous mm -hmm. loop which i as i'm saying that almost feels like the inner critic it's like right yes sure mm -hmm. it's like developing that inner critic because eventually you know the sort of physical contact i recognize can often stop those voices may you know people move out they have families they have jobs they move to other parts of the world but it's there mm -hmm. yes they take that, it with that, them that's yeah, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. um and you talk in your book about uh left right brain and and this is something i really wanted to to ask to ask you more on just to kind of explain how it's how it's influenced your work and your research you know left versus right brain and why the latter is so important when it comes to working with chronic shame mm -hmm. well as a therapist, you probably know that if you have clients who carry a whole lot of shame and they come into your office, they often know it doesn't make sense. Mm. And you and they could try to talk it down, right? Try to yeah. say, but look at what a good person you are. You do this and this and this and this. Really, mm. is there a reason for you to feel so bad about yourself? 
Yeah. But it does not give way to logic, right? You know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mm -hmm. agree with me. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. I'm, la I'm laughing because it's, it just is so resonates. You know, I yeah. really get that. Yeah. So, so if it's not a logical thing, it, it, it rests somewhere else in the psyche, right? It's, it's formed out of uh, kind of pre-verbal experiences and, and senses of self. Mm. And, um, you know, that whole split between right brain and left brain, I don't know, sort of, I'm not a neuroscientist. It's for me, it's as much a metaphor as it is a scientific reality that there is a left brain and a right brain and they process things differently. I mean, Alan Shore would, you know, die on that hill that that's actually true. Yeah, there's evidence. Um, there's people who lots are, of evidence. Yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yes, for we for me, what matters is that the both the formation of shame and the in quotes cure for shame has to happen somewhere else yeah in the brain body psyche and that somewhere else is you know when Shore talks about it he talks about and lots of people talk about the relationship the attachment relationship right mm. which is all about the nonverbal, which is all about attunement and recognition with and, our early caregivers and, and primary caregivers when that's yeah, right as babies who can't talk and that's right yeah. and that that's where actually the very chronic chronic shame right, right. gets rooted is in breaks of attunement. I mean, if you have a parent who can't attune to your emotions very well when you're four, you probably have a parent who can hold you but can't do the gaze attune. Sure, right, sure. like. Yeah parents who have a hard time attuning or there's some mismatch between the child's character temperament and the parent's yeah. ability to attune that that probably goes throughout right mm -hmm. and so so shore's point is that um a lot of what come comes under sort of psychiatric definition malfunction dysfunction um can be traced to an early lack of attunement so that the right brain is not kind of calm and okay and unchaotic. It's it's been developed into into capacities to know what feelings are and to modulate feeling, right? Yeah. Um, if that hasn't been met, if there hasn't been that that attunement by a caregiver, the the child's sort of affective storms aren't calmed aren't shaped don't become accessible to them as feeling right it's kind of like laying not laying the groundwork in a way and then trying to pick up the pieces potentially in a very chaotic and confused place in a way i'm almost like picturing a maze or something just like uh, the left brain being well i've read about this thing yeah but i but, but I, I can't, can't access right. it what, what's right. going on and I, I really recognize that and the sort of conflict between the two and the, the other the other piece of it though is that mm. then his argument and mine too following him is that to make any difference to that kind of trauma to that kind of things not having taken shape and not becoming coherent the the the, the way to access that is through right brain attunement between a client and a therapist. So that's the healing part, really. That's so the where... healing part is is kind of a, a new attachment relationship in which the affective sort of chaos gets gets held, gets met, gets shaped by another more mature right brain, and things calm and, and heal that way. Yeah. And... So what mattered to me when I heard about left brain, right brain was, oh, so this kind of is a, a scientific evidence for my intuition, and those are many others, other people think this too, of course, mm -hmm. that the way to help somebody with chronic shame is to be just, not just, is to be very present, attuned, state sharing, recognizing just being there for some there's some magic in that that helps them to start feel feeling more whole and less shameful right yeah
I'm just reflecting on how my daughter was born in November. So she's, she's just over four months old. Oh, wow. And I, I look at her and I, it's just amazing the presence mm -hmm. and talking. And, and I just think I can really see how maybe this is the left brain stuff. Those kind of thoughts, which, you know, and as we've spoken about, it's not about blaming, but it's just people being in the place they are, but a sense of, okay, that person won't start understanding me until they're three or four, or this mm -hmm. won't happen or this will happen. And for me, that feels like the real, that really resonates. And maybe it's since having a daughter, but also doing this work and, but everything you said there just really rung true. And it's kind of. So you have a sense of something really, really being going back and forth between the two yeah, of you. It's like, this is now, happening. This, this is, is happening. This is, this is, this is lots logic. of communication. Yeah. yeah. This isn't, uh -huh. you know, yeah. very early on, I could think, oh, is that magical thinking? Me thinking like, oh, yeah, mm. she knows what I'm saying. But it's like, now that cry sounds different. That mm -hmm. facial expression responds differently. She looks at our dog in a kind of way that's really sweet. And mm -hmm. like, that mm -hmm. stuff is really important. And bringing the left brain part, like I say, I wonder if that is, you know, really feels like that, that makes sense that that would be the stumbling block in a way, like in a way it's, it's trying to help us. It has its place, you know, going back to your mm -hmm. talking about social work and the sort of diagnosis, maybe, you know, what I recognize can, you know, I'm not sure how it is in Canada, but you know, many, many health systems, they're busy. They're, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's so tough, stressful. It's like, I've got to get through this yet. Yeah, fine. Okay. That person's got this. And it's like, they mm -hmm. haven't even met eye contact with the that's right their patient. list of symptoms at best yeah yeah mm -hmm. which feels very left brain but then something's mm -hmm. happening and in a way the paradox of the left brain being the issue but the evidence may have the evidence supporting the right brain stuff has kind of come from that left brain evidence it feels mm -hmm. like quite it's quite interesting how how that's kind of played out and i wonder if that's in the sort of psychoeducation place that that could be a really helpful way for those who are struggling to maybe get more in touch with the right brain emotional stuff, but are very confident in the cognitive stuff is almost going, Hey, check out this experiment. You know, if you like, mm -hmm. if you like you cognitive get... stuff, check this out. It's like, oh, That's right. To get to okay. some <laughs> access to the right brain via the left brain. Right. Yeah. 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 You reference, uh, Paul Gilbert and compassion focused therapy in your book, which is something I, you know, really important in my, in my life. Mm. Again, I've, I've seen in my clinical practice, how powerful it is in integrating the relational and CFT, uh, stuff. Um, and I've found compassion to be a really powerful antidote to shame. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and something that is important to hold alongside me and my relationship with myself and others, you know, that, uh, Paul Gilbert, something I really like that he brings in is that notion of Compassion isn't just, ah, oh, it's a kind of, I'm here with you, but the wisdom element mm. that he talks about, you know, there's that really, there's a, I don't know if you've come across it, but there's an example. He talks about somebody, somebody at sea, not in a good way. And you see them and you think, oh, I feel so bad for that person. And without the wisdom, you might just jump in and then forget. Mm. Oh my God, I can't swim. <laughs> and I really <laughs> like that because it was like mm. the two can coexist. And is mm. there any of that in it for you? Do you recognize any of that? Because I, mean, I heard you sort of, um, it sounds like compassion is something that is is important for you. Talk about where that fits in all of this for you and in therapy. Hmm. I think the hardest thing for people who suffer from a lot of chronic shame, the hardest thing for them to to be able to do is to have compassion for themselves because the other voice of you're a loser, you're sick, you're wrong, you're bad, you're what, it's, it's so strong. And they can even sort of trash themselves for trying to be this wussy, compassionate kind of person, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's the ultimate kind of antidote if that compassion can be brought inside. And it I think people learn it, that it's possible, and that it's admirable even, after a good long time, or a solid time anyway, with a therapist who actually is that kind of wise compassionate, not like, oh, poor you, but I really get this. And uh, and even, you know, a part of the challenge to find some self-compassion is, uh, that's pretty strong stuff, 
right? Mm. Um, and potentially really scary, I guess, as I say, again, the left right brain thing, this on paper sounds like an amazing thing. Why would you not do it? But that mm. almost, you know, you said about the yuck of shame. It's like, I'm almost sort of feeling mm -hmm. like you want to th potentially throw up saying these mm. words. There's something comfortable in the uncomfortable. That's right. Uh, Yes, there's some kind of a fantasy that if you be hard on yourself, that's going to help somehow. Yeah, where did we learn that from? Which the intergenerations of yeah, where does mm -hmm. that come from? Is that something mm -hmm. you subscribe to intergenerational? Trauma? Oh yes, absolutely. Yes, really? mm -hmm. okay. yes, and shame comes down the generations. Ah, it's like that. Mm -hmm. Um, there's an old uh, Homecoming uh, by John Bradshaw, mm -hmm. uh, the book, and he talks about toxic shame a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just really interesting. I remember. There was, I learned about toxic shame and then I read about chronic shame and there was so, there was a lot of parallels. Yes. But mm -hmm. I remember that there's a line in there when he was kind of saying that voice, whose is it? It's like great, 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 great uncle Jim in that moment. And I, I, <laughs> it's like, that's so, mm. yes. Like there's mm -hmm. something, there's something to that. Um, yeah. So yes. People of, who don't know how to be present, mm. don't know how to be present because no one was present with them. Right. Yeah, it's like carried on, right? And they, they, exactly. Yeah. And no one knew, you know, as you go back in time, it does carry down the generations, which is nice for people who are doing the work to realize that they get to, um, like, it gets to stop here. I actually get to be present with my four-month-old, right? Yeah, I can break the She won't cycle. have to do this, yes. Yeah, and that sort mm. of recognizing, which I guess fits under compassion, but also the relational the relational therapist is a human being too, in a sense of you're going to make mistakes, but... Mm you do your best and your best is good enough, which is a much more mm -hmm. compassionate voice in response to a mistake than you're mm -hmm. bad. That was wrong, which as we've said, could potentially have come that person who said that I re I've realized may have had no, they may have no recollection of saying that they could have been on the way to get the groceries and have that's said, right. Oh, what are you doing? You're bad, but it's good in there. Yeah. And if that's happening. So let's circle back around to that yeah, thing, yeah. thing about do parents, Shame, is it because parents actually shame their kids that kids grow up with this chronic shame? And my position is that just not being there for your child and leaving them alone with whatever they're struggling with, a child is likely to think, I feel bad. And it's a very, I feel really bad. It's a yucky feeling to, I am really bad. I am yucky, right? That's a right brain kind of a slide. And nobody has to have shamed them overtly to make them feel that way. But then they are actually more vulnerable to the mistakes and the little moments of shame that do happen. There's something that I learned between the first edition and the second edition of the shame book um, that I needed to think about. Like, are we as parents not ever allowed to say, hey, that's not okay to one of our kids because then they'll feel shame and that's dangerous? I needed to think about that, right? And I needed to also, for other reasons that I won't go into now, to be able to say, you know, shame is a, is a human sort of social, interpersonal emotion or state that is not in itself any more wrong or bad or dangerous than any of the other emotions. But what happens, I think, where there's not a decent attunement between parent and child and some and parents carry some extra upset about or, or lack of resilience to making mistakes themselves anyway, is that mistakes and being wrong and having done something wrong are not processed very well between parent and child. So what I've come to realize as I talk with my clients is it's not that we should never feel shame, but it's that we need help to learn how to feel right size shame. Yes. That fit, you know, if it's like this totally. big, the thing that you did, the shame that you feel should be this big. And you also need some help to realize that if you hurt somebody's feelings, you can apologize. That you can. But it um, doesn't mean that you are, you are bad. You can do wrong, but right? you are not wrong. Well, that's the sort of thing between guilt and shame. What I realized yeah. before, guilt is not shame. Yeah. And guilt is what I did and shame is who I am. But I think you can't pull them apart entirely. Mm. Because if you do a bad thing, you can feel like a bad person for a moment, right? Yeah. And and that's okay because we've all got shadow sides, right? Yeah. We're a mix of good and bad. We don't have to be this all good person who's every once in a while for what reason would do a bad thing, right? Mm. We, we can be partly bad and we can be helped with our badness. 
Yeah. We can we can be helped to be normal human beings who process our our failures with other people. And kids need a lot of help with that, especially kids who for yeah. other reasons have got this shame proneness going anyway. So yeah. so true. Um and to come in there something you said really reminded me of it's interesting. I I suddenly thought of a nature program and looking at like animals, you know, one mm -hmm. one on the hunt. And I, I often think about this, which kind of ties into the, again, bringing Paul Gilbert in again, that I like that, mm. the evolutionary model, you know, the like the left brain, the right brain, the old brain, the new brain, mm. that sort of notion that the zebra who escapes the kill is pretty like, oh, that was scary. What next? It's done. Mm. But yet I'm thinking as a shame-based human, that goes on and on and on and on and on. And it's it's coming from a place of probably wanting to protect, but by doing that, then it's going to get snatched. It hasn't moved mm. to the next place where it needs to hide from the gazelle or whatever it is. Um, and I just think the capacity we have to shame ourselves is 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 huge, really. And it's with, with constraining all this stuff going on. and it's stunting. Yeah. Is your is your point right? Like totally. And yeah, it keeps us from moving on and trying new things. On. And yeah, and going back to what you'd said. Almost reframing it and going, because I, I recognize in this work, something that is associated with trauma and that yuckiness, decades of feeling that it's like, I want, I don't want to feel that, of course, but in a way it was there to protect us and it's evolved and it can hold its place alongside other emotions, but yet this meaning we've given to it over the years and what's happened, it's, it feels like it's got all messy. Mm. Something's got all sticky and just kind yeah. of something's happened to actually, if you were to say to someone, a cave person, you did wrong there. Okay. I feel wrong. What's next? It's sort <laughs> of what I make up, you know, I can't mm. go back in time. And what I wanted to link in here, and I wanted to ask you was, cause you've spoken about not wanting to blame and what I recognize sometimes with I guess if we take something like boundary work, someone who's never had any boundaries, learns to have boundaries, the risk of they go the complete other way. You know, okay, mm. I struggle with, say, codependency. Yep, I'm never going to hold a door open for someone again. It's like, <laughs> you might have problems with relationships doing that. You know, where, and, and what I wanted to say, I don't know if this is too big a question. It feels like a big question, but mm. where's the balance? How do we find balance if we have had that that shame, that notion that we were wrong. If we did go into codependency, fractured attachment, people pleasing, all that stuff that we don't want to do, but we do want to have healthy relationships, which do involve moments of taking responsibility and saying, oh, I was wrong there and being resilient. How, how do we find a balance in that? The word that comes to mind is compassion, right? Right. Because if your way out of shame is compassion, it will be... I hope a compassion that goes outward as well. You're not giving yourself a free pass to be a no. jerk, right? Yeah. You're, you're you're smiling at yourself and saying, "Hey, you're okay," and they're and, okay too. And and yeah, and when you're living like, "Hey, I'm okay," it's pretty easy, relatively mm. speaking. I mean, it's way easier to see everybody around you as safer and okay than when you're riven by shame and feeling like everybody's looking at you like what's wrong with you, right? Then you're going to be reactive to people, right? And 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 like either argy-bargy kind of reactive yeah, or so like, 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 oh, like, like stay away kind of reactive. Yeah, and kind of like the – sounds like fight, flight, freeze. You know, you almost have yes. to go, go into battle yes, at your own exactly. – at your own yeah. choosing. That's right. Self-imposed so, mm -hmm. war with, yes. with this. Right. Yeah. Oh, but if you get this polyvagal feeling going to play with that for yourself, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a social openness, basically, and uh, 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 trusting. I mean, not without thought, but yeah. And can that be, you know, for you, have you found in your clinical practice, so there's this, what feels like, Certainly what I recognize is just this underpinning. It's just the kind of foundation of this relational work. But do you do you find yourself integrating other stuff in there? Or do you do you recommend that for other people? So for example, someone, you know, I was thinking before our conversation, it took 
being with a relational therapist for me to be able to access a lot of the other stuff, which I love, you know. Which other of stuff do you mean? Yeah. So say the more cognitive stuff, ah, CBT, of the, any of that stuff. But at the time, I remember my, you know, I think my first therapist was purely CBT and it was just like, I've been told I'm wrong or what to do my whole life. <laughs> right. This feels really tough. Yeah. And then, and I should caveat that this by saying this is my experience and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a journey, not a destination and different things work for different people. But then going to see a purely like psychoanalytical, mm. and it's just mm. like, hello. Mm-hmm. Anybody home? Hello. <laughs> and it was like, ah, but the relational part, it, it, it just kind of washed over this. So I could mm. look at those other things and go, mm-hmm. actually, oh, no, those are good for different people and they can work. And as an integrative therapist, that's great. You know, in a way, that's the kind of there isn't one way, which you may have learned mm-hmm. in childhood, which I quite like about it. But mm-hmm. for you, do you, are there other areas that filter in more so than others? You know, we've spoken about compassion. It sounds like that's that's big in the work, almost an unspoken thing. But um, in the more, we're talking about left brain, you know, are there things people can do around that? Because I'm, I'm aware mm-hmm. a lot comes up in sessions and then six days or however many it is between. What, what are people doing with mm-hmm. their with their stuff between? So I've got about three answers to that question. I'll start with a, with a quick one, which is, there is a part of me that has always been kind of psychoanalytic in the sense of there's there are processes going on inside us in our unconscious, in our dreaming, in whatever, that we don't have to worry about. And they keep happening for the seven days between sessions or even the 14 days between sessions. And then we can pick it, we can just start talking and whatever needs to happen will happen. We can trust that process. So that's one answer. Another answer is I have done a little bit of training in CBT myself. Um, I think that most therapists, just like most therapists are fundamentally relationally grounded, do relational work, most therapists help clients with their thought processes, right? Yeah. Help them to to think like, well, on a scale of one to 10, how scary is that? And, you know, if you breathe, if you breathe through that, maybe you can settle your, your, your system down, right? So, you know, windows of tolerance and, and uh, those different fight, fight, fright, you know, helping people to understand their nervous systems, that sort of psychoeducation, that's sure. important to me. Um, something that I find really intriguing, and it's probably because of my literary background, sense of theater, psychodrama is always interesting to me, is I like talking in terms of parts of self. And I write about that too. I'm not certified IFS or anything like that, but parts of self have been around forever, right? Since Gestalt days. And th- that question of, how to be compassionate with oneself can be really so most in my experience, often most easily put into practice when there's a part of self and another part of self. And one part of self is sort of exiled in a corner and, and, the self can have compassion for that, but then there are the, you know, the, in the IFS world, there are the protectors who Mm. are your defenses to use other language and to be compassionate to those defenses too. Like, tell me your story. What are you trying to do here to, to bring sort of compassion and, and curiosity and okayness to, you know, no bad parts is that title of Dick Schwartz's book, right? That sort of, here we are, there are many parts of us, or, you know, you could talk just in terms of feelings too, or, but, but to, to be interested in how this system works. I love that. And to personify it, right. Is, is one of my favorite ways, you know, if you talk about, so what do you do besides just sit and listen? I play with parts <laughs> with people when they want to, and only if they want to, because it's certainly not the only way to go, right? Yeah. Well, I, thanks for sharing that, because it's just really interesting to get an insight into into your practice, but also hearing, in a way, the integrative thing is bringing different parts in and being curious. I, I love that when you said that, curious, because I guess going back to shame or value judgments, it's like... I can't think this. And then there's an immediate barrier. But as soon as it as soon as there's permission to go, oh, what what if I was curious rather than shaming? It, mm-hmm. it just feels I can feel it in my body saying it. It just feels different. Mm-hmm. It feels a lot more open and freeing and like 
Ah, <sighs> okay. Yes. Uh, my favorite my favorite part of parts work with people who suffer from chronic shame is when they get to the place where they can say to that to the part that shames them, wait a minute, can we have a conversation here? Like, why do you do that? What are you trying to do for me when you're shaming me like that? Right? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to do for me? How are you trying to protect me? Can we move on to some different kind of something here? Mm. But first, I'll understand you and respect what you're trying to do, right? Yeah, there's a, the, in the meditation world, there's something I really like with Jack Cornfield, a, a meditation teacher. And I remember him talking about this, going, oh, who's that there? Mm. And okay, like, I really get that you're trying to help me. Um, I'm okay right now. I think that's what he says. I'm all, I'm all right just now. You know, almost like I know in CBT they have these things like a worry appointment, but it's almost, mm-hmm. it's not, It's it seems like a healthy way of ignoring. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If we talk mm-hmm. about the, the psychoanalytic thing, it's like, mm-hmm. let's go, 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 and just dive in. But sometimes with shame, it's like you recognize that process. And if I go down this track, it's just going to mean more and more and more. So actually like, I'm okay right now, you know, mm-hmm. I know you're trying to help, but I'm just going to put you there. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to watch a movie or I'm just going to make a cup of tea and I'll come back to you if I need you. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It, that, mm-hmm. that, I quite liked that. Um, and it, it feels in line with what you're saying. Um, mm-hmm. So before I let you go, Pat, um, I wanted to invite you to do some word association, if that feels okay. <laughs> okay. It's something mm-hmm. I invite all my guests to do. Um, mm-hmm. And Yeah have some fun with that. Does that sound okay? Oh, sure. <laughs> I'm having <Right>. test anxiety. <laughs> okay. Well, um, no pressure here. This is just, right. uh, yeah, just, uh, let's see where we go. So I'll say a word and you'll say what comes back. Come the first thing that comes up. So here we go. Water. Lake. Family. Love. Mountain. High. Truth. Oh, solid. Closeness. Touch. And finally, dreams. Ethereal. How was that? How did that take you away? That you thought was it okay. Would? Yeah. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. I guess I found I really like that and it's becoming a theme on the podcast, yeah. but it feels every guest, it links in a certain way to what they've been speaking about, I find. And, and certainly what we were talking about I recognize it can be linked with shame, but certainly around obsessions and just inner conflict. What does that mean that I'm having that thought? And actually to sort of quote Pat DeYoung, curiosity, what is maybe being curious rather than there being a right or wrong? I guess that's what I quite like about it and hearing what Mm. it's like, think of a dictionary, but maybe these words can mean more and that's okay. It's definitely a right brain kind of play thing, Uh isn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh Well, finally, what would you say, Pat, to someone maybe listening to this podcast? Um, I'll start that again. What would you say to someone who might be thinking of beginning therapy, Mm. but are still unsure? Mm -hmm. So are they thinking of trying to find a therapist or are they just sitting thinking, is this a good thing to do or not? So let's say someone may be listening to this podcast and thinking, I like what I hear, but I'm a bit scared or I'm not quite sure, or potentially that left brain. I think I can fix this stuff. I think if I just, Mm. there's something about that that feels risky or scary. And I don't know, taking the plunge, I guess is, you know, how can someone, what would you say to that person? I would say that in a way, it's 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 right to be kind of scared, because what you're thinking about in a good therapy that makes dif- makes a difference is being in a relationship with another person where you'll be kind of vulnerable, and that is kind of scary. So, what you need to know is that any good therapist is going to protect your vulnerability, and above all, do no harm. And most therapists also, above all, do no shame, right? That a good therapist is going to be on your side and want to hear who you are and what your trouble is and will not be judging or have an agenda for you. So that's like to have in your mind that this could be a safe and 
comfortable and comforting and interesting thing to do. And then you have and then, you know, to know that you have the right to interview people if they'll let you on the phone or even spend some money doing some sessions until you find a person. And it's not like there's only one right person, but a person that you feel comfortable with. That yes, I can sit with this person and I think I can trust this person to hear me with compassion and curiosity and sensitivity. Mm. And then it's not so scary anymore, right? Yeah, oh, I really like that. So wise and compassionate hearing you say that. Um, Pat DeYoung, thank you so much for coming on today and speaking with me. It's been a real honor and privilege. Hope to see you again soon and best of luck in your in your next chapter. <laughs> thank you very much, Matthew. Wow, that was great. Thank you, Pat, for speaking with me. It was such a privilege speaking with someone whose work has played such a big part in my own journey. There was so much I valued in what she shared. How children are wounded by being missed and the significance of this in their development and later life. The proverbial split between our left and right brain and just how important it is to attune to children from the very beginning. Pat touched on the work and research of Alan Shaw who authored the book, Right Brain Psychotherapy. I found her link between right brain dysregulation and chronic shame so interesting, and really valued her noting the importance of finding a relational balance, not all in or all out, but rather somewhere in between. What I felt really stood out in our conversation was the healing role of compassion. In compassion-focused therapy, it's noted that what has happened to us is not our fault, but it is our responsibility to learn how to live and work with our struggles and tricky brains. For me, Pat really embodies this notion. I experienced her as having a curious, compassionate and wise mind. I was left reflecting how powerful the integration of relational and compassion-focused therapy can be and how much I personally connect with it. I was left reflecting how powerful the integration of relational and compassion-focused therapy can be and how much I personally connect with it. You will have heard Pat and I discussing different forms of therapy. Just to note, there is no one-size-fits-all and our discussion reflected our own journeys with relational psychotherapy. What works for some may not for others and as Pat said, it's important to remember you can interview therapists before making an informed decision on who is the best fit for you. What works for some may not for others and as Pat said, it's important to remember you can interview therapists before making an informed decision on who is the best fit for you. If you'd like to explore the many different fields of psychotherapy, check out the BACP's A to Z of therapy approaches. I'll include a link in the episode description. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. The Journey Home was brought to you in conjunction with Portobello Behavioral Health. Music and production by Matthew Starrett, edited by Tom Worrell. You've been listening to the Journey Home Podcast.